Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, for the message, Transformed Through Trials. All right, so when we kicked off chapter four last weekend, I started the message by showing you guys the difference between two very important words, justification, sanctification, okay? So if you'll recall, through justification, and, and this is gonna be so important by the end of the message today, you gotta get this now. Through justification, we are saved from the penalty. Can you guys say the word penalty? The penalty of sin, the moment we repentantly believe in Christ. And so I'm talking about genuine conversion here. I'm not talking about saying a little prayer for fire insurance and then not being changed, right? All right, and then sanctification, different theological term. Sanctification is where we are being saved from the power of sin progressively as we yield to Christ. All right, can you guys say the word power? Okay, so now in sanctification, we're not being saved from the penalty of sin, that's justification. And when I, when I talk about you know, saying a little prayer for fire insurance, what I mean is that people who recite a sinner's prayer like it's a poem, um, but they don't really mean it. And that's what I'm talking about. No, I'm talking about genuine conversion, that happens at justification, but then sanctification as God's kids were being saved, not from the penalty of sin, that's taken care of already, now we're being saved from the power of sin progressively as we yield to the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification has to do with our standing before God. We are children of God. Is anybody excited about that this afternoon, right? We're children of God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sanctification, it's not about our standing, it's about our sprouting. In other words, we're growing up as kids from little to older to adults in the Lord. Justification has to do with our position. We're declared righteous by God because of our faith in Jesus Christ and it's not our self-righteousness, it's his righteousness. Sanctification has to do with our practice. We're bearing fruit. Now as we come to the second half of 1 Peter chapter four, you need to know that this chapter is not about justification. If you wanna learn more about justification, go to Romans three, Romans four, Romans five. It's all there, right? But this chapter, this is sanctification, which leads us to this question. What is the goal of our sanctification? Here's the answer, we saw it last week. The goal of sanctification is Christ-likeness. Can you guys please say that word, Christ-likeness, which means spiritual growth. And so through the lifelong process of sanctification, the Holy Spirit within us, slowly but surely, is transforming us into the image of Christ, but we have to yield. We have to submit, we have to surrender. And as we yield to the Holy Spirit's authority and influence in our lives, what happens is that he enables us to become more like Christ. He enables us to grow spiritually. He enables us to mature in our faith. As we study 1 Peter chapter four, this truth right here jumps off the page. And that is that sanctification sometimes means suffering Transformation sometimes means trials. So as the Holy Spirit's doing that work of sanctification in our hearts, because we live in a fallen world, it's not if, it's we will. 
we will experience trials and tribulations. We will experience suffering and setbacks. We will, experiencing, we will experience problems and pain. Okay, so when that happens, not if, but when it happens, what should our attitude be? Right, attitude's everything. What should our attitude be when we keep getting hit in the face with these trials? Well, James told us, here it is, count it all, what's the word? Joy. There's your attitude. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various, I'm sorry, trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, this is a test, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's a good thing. That's a character trait. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, and so notice first that we should count it all joy when we encounter the trials of life. So a believer says, how in the world can I be happy when I'm hurting? Well, here's how you can be happy when you're hurting. You can be happy when you're hurting when you realize there's a purpose for your pain. And I'll talk about that purpose in a moment, but before I do, I wanna point out to you secondly on the second sentence there that James talks about these trials that they come um, in all shapes and sizes, right? They're trials of various kinds. What does that mean? That means that trials, they look different for different people. And so maybe it includes a friend who mocks you for taking a stand as a Christian. Nobody likes it when people talk about behind your back, right? Or people come against you because of your faith. Or your trial could include um, an x-ray at the doctor's office that takes your breath away. It could include a, an accident that leaves you, leaves you shaken to your core, a job loss that results in time of an unemployment, a loved one who passes away and leaves you devastated, et cetera, et cetera. I think you guys get the gist, all right? So if you believe God is sovereign, can you say amen? amen. If you believe he's in control, can you say amen? amen? So what's the purpose? What's the purpose of all these trials? Well, thirdly, end of the verse, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, the purpose is spiritual growth, all right? So good news, everybody. There's a purpose for your pain as a child of God, and that is spiritual growth and maturity. And so as we look at 1 Peter chapter four, you need to know that the recipients of this letter were going through some very intense trials. Now, most of their trials, historically, as we look at these people in the first century who were believers, had to do with persecution. All right, so this letter was either written right before the great fire of Rome, maybe right after, we're not really sure, but um, you know, Rome burns down, Nero blames it on Christians, and all of a sudden, um, the, the persecution of the church, which is primarily Jewish in its early years, coming from fellow Jews, now that's giving way from Jewish persecution to Roman persecution, and these people in, he, that Peter's writing to they're experiencing that persecution. But you need to know that James says trials are varied, various trials. They come in all shapes and sizes, so it's not just limited to persecution. And by the way, Peter tells the recipients of this letter in chapter one, verse six, that the trials they're experiencing 
are various trials. And so I say all that to say that the trials the recipients of this letter were going through was not just limited to persecution. They came in all shapes and sizes. All right, so what did Peter want these people to know? Title of the message, he wanted them to know that God wanted to transform them through their trials. And we're the people of God 2,000 years later. Truth is truth for every generation. So you need to know that God wants to transform you as well through trials. Okay, and so as we consider this topic, we saw last week that we should be willing to, number one, suffer in God's will. You say, where do you get that? Verse one, see that little one on the right-hand side of the sentence? If you're new to Calvary, those are verses. We're pulling, this is called expository teaching, expositional teaching. We're pulling out of God's word practical principles. So we should be willing, number one, to suffer in God's will. We should be willing, number two, to die to our old life and embrace our new life. We should be willing, number three, to stand out as a Christian, come what may. We should be willing to accept persecution and even martyrdom if it ever came to that. And number five, we should be willing to pray for, love, and serve others. As we continue now through the second half of the chapter, we're just gonna pull out some more principles to apply to our lives. And so right now, if you're looking at 1 Peter 4, verse 12, can you say amen? Okay, so here we go. He says, beloved. What does that mean? He means, it means he's talking to Christians, and you just got a word to describe the Father's heart towards you. If you know Christ, beloved, it's a term for Christians. God loves the whole world, but this is a special term for Christians. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it, not if, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So as we continue to think about this topic, we should be willing, number six, we're just gonna keep going from last week, to be tested by our teacher. Be tested by our teacher. In other words, when we encounter trials, we shouldn't think, well, wait a minute. Suffering, pain, <laughs> trials and tribulations? Hold on a minute. I thought as a Christian I had the power to name it and claim it. I thought, you know, I'm supposed to be walking in perfect health, wealth, and prosperity. What's going on? I'm surprised. Well, look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Notice the words, test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter said, hey everybody, don't be surprised by the test. Right, this makes sense. When we were in high school, when the teacher announced there's a test on Friday, we weren't surprised on Friday when we got the test. When you go to university, we're not surprised when the professor says there's a test on Monday. Monday comes, there's a test, all right? So if we're not surprised by those kinds of tests, why are we surprised when God tests us? Life is a classroom, and if we wanna get an A, 
in this whole topic called sanctification, we need to focus on passing the tests that he gives us. The class of sanctification. You want to pass the test? Then focus in. And what do these tests sometimes look like? Fiery trials. Straight from God's word. Now you can't talk about 1 Peter chapter 4 without illustrating it by the Old Testament example of Job. And I touched on Job last week, but I'm gonna go a little more in depth this week. And so if you know Job, you know that Job, he knew all about being tested by fiery trials. So remember the story. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him in all the earth. He's blameless and upright, he avoids evil, and he respects me. Have you noticed him? (laughs) And Satan snarls at God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Of course he respects you. You put a hedge of protection around the guy. You've blessed the works of his hands. You've increased his possessions. He's living a comfortable life. Of course he respects you. Of course he turns his back on evil. But God, you remove your blessing. You cause him to suffer. He'll curse you to your face. And God said, in essence, well, let the test begin. And he gave the devil permission to go after Job. And some people cross their arms and say, well, I don't really like that. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right. Well, here's a little reminder this afternoon. He's the potter. We're just the clay. Right? He's the creator. We're just the creation. He's the uncreated, infinite, eternal, righteous, holy God. And so we got to check our hearts because here's what I know and what I see in the culture is that more and more people are beginning to question God. In other words, they're taking this moral superiority over the creator of the universe and calling him and his word into question. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the height of hubris. We have no right to question God. And so the next thing you know, raiders are coming down into Job's property, and what did they do? They stole his oxen and his camels, and they put the servants to the sword. And the next thing you know, fire is falling from heaven and burns up all his sheep and burns up the servants in charge of the sheep. And the next thing you know, more raiders are coming, and they're stealing the camels, and they're putting those servants to the sword. One after another, one heartache after another heartache, And then, worst of all for Job, a great wind came and knocked down the house where his kids were eating and drinking, and it crushed every single last one of them. Before the story's all said and done, Job literally is inflicted by Satan with loathsome sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And so the next scene, it's so sad, we see Job in the Bible, he's sitting on an ash heap, with a broken piece of pottery, and he's scraping his sores, probably because they itched. Ashes, by the way, in the Old Testament were a symbol of devastation and ruin. And when you sat in ashes, right, that that meant that you were telling everybody that you're in mourning. And then 
If that's not bad enough, his wife walks by, she looks at him and she says, just curse God and die. Man, when you have a wife like that, who needs enemies, right? <laughs> wow, and, and you guys think, some of you think you're going through hard times. You gotta love Job though. Look at how he responded to his wife. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not, what's the word? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And so, please notice that from God, yes, he does send blessings, that's good, but sometimes he sends trouble. And somebody says, no, 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 Satan is the one who inflicted all that pain on Job. Come on, guys. Who gave Satan permission? God, a sovereign God. What we gotta come to grips with is that God is sovereign and Satan's on a leash and God, who's holy and perfect, allows these troubles to come into our lives for two reasons, for our good and for his glory. You gotta read the whole book. You gotta read the last chapter. God blessed him double what he had in the beginning. And so yes, God does send trouble. And this is what I think Pastor Andrew was talking about in his introduction, which was really good, is that, man, more and more, it's so sad, but, but you see these Christian books and these and this advertisements, and it's like, you know, some special secret, and if you just get this book, and then you're gonna really know how to live life or whatever, please. Listen, this is where it's at, right here. Just gotta teach it. And so in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And I love his attitude, because earlier, when he heard that his kids had died, this guy falls on the ground and he worships God. <laughs> and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that tells me that this guy has graduated from the spiritual nursery and he's grown up in Christ. If all that can happen and he can lift up his hand and say blessed be the name of the Lord, my goodness. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Later in the book, Job said this, I touched on this last week, God knows the way I take, when, not if, when he has tested me, I shall come out as gold. Somebody says, oh wait a minute, pastor, Job's an Old Testament story. Uh, story. We're New Testament saints, this kind of stuff doesn't apply to us today. No, actually, the Old Testament stories were written down for us, New Testament saints, for our instruction. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. So we really need to listen to the whole Bible. We don't know what in the world's going on in the heavenlies. We don't know the conversations that God has with angelic beings. What we do know is what Peter tells us, and that is that our, t our faith will be tested and we need to be ready and not surprised. And here's the good news for new covenant children, and that is that if Job under the, he actually wasn't even under the old covenant, he was prior to the old covenant, 
probably a contemporary of Abraham, but if Job in the Old Testament could get through his trials, sure enough, blood-bought children of God under the new covenant who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we can get through our trials because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But listen, whether you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, all the way through, there's a theme, and that is that God tests his children. There's difficult times. Joseph went through a severe test when his brothers mistreated him. Moses went through a severe test when the children of Israel wanted to stone him. David went through a severe test when King Saul, jealous and envious, kept trying to kill him. You just keep reading through the Bible and you see that Daniel went through a severe test when he was thrown in a lion's den and the apostles when they were persecuted and martyred for the faith. And of course, we can't forget our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of whom, verse 13 He says, but rejoice insofar as you share in whose sufferings? Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. The word blessed means joy, joyful or happy. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So as we continue to think about this topic we should be willing, number seven, to make a choice to rejoice. Now, the reason I say choice is because nobody's gonna feel like rejoicing when you're going through difficult times. It's gotta be a mature choice. And so the recipients of this letter were being persecuted. And ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know. I just wanna encourage everybody and make your day today. Um, no matter who you are, if you're a Christian, you're gonna be persecuted to at some level and at some time in your life. The way I know that, it's, it's a promise of God. Now it's not one of those promises that we put on a refrigerator at home, but it's still a promise. The promise is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to this, if you're listening, say amen. Here's God's promise to you and me. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3, 12. And so whether it's at your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, among your own family members, people who resist the gospel, it's not if, it's when, but they're gonna come after you at some point. And when that happens, how should you respond? How should I respond? Jesus told us. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He said, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. The problem with our culture is we're not even thinking about heaven. We're just thinking about, you know, everything right now and how to be a success right now. We don't even think about heaven. We're so distracted by all these news stories every single day and no one's even thinking about Heaven, no one's definitely thinking about rewards in heaven, but, but here's the thing, if we live godly in Christ Jesus, when we're persecuted, uh, Jesus said, hey, rejoice and be glad, your reward is gonna be great. It's just gonna blow you away. And Peter said the same thing in verse 13, please look at it again, he said, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad, when? When his glory is revealed. 
And so someday, we don't know when, we don't know the day or the hour, but someday Christ is coming back and when his glory is revealed, when his glory appears, our trials are gonna disappear and we're gonna absolutely rejoice. And as I was writing my message this week, it made me think of an old song that I used to sing back in the day, and I know I'm aging myself, but back when we used to sing the hymns, um, I thought about the old hymn, When We All Get to Heaven. Now if you remember that hymn, raise your hand. Yes, this is definitely 11.30 service. (laughs) 8.30, I think every hand went up, right? And I, I really felt, you know, I feel at home with you guys too, but I am kind of getting up there in years. But yes, when we all get to heaven, and, and I, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna research who wrote this hymn, just like I did with Fanny Crosby about a month ago. And sure enough, here's another story. When we all get to heaven was written by Eliza Hewitt. And the article I found from Christianity.com is called Songs from a Bed of Pain. It says, I'm just gonna quote some excerpts Can there be a purpose in a crippling ailment? Eliza Hewitt may have wondered that. She was born in 1851 in Philadelphia, educated in the local school system, graduated as valedictorian of the girls' normal school. She became a teacher in the public schools of her city. But then came misery. Her career screeched to a halt when she was forced to a bed with a painful spinal problem. Her debilitating condition was caused by a reckless student striking her with a piece of slate. And lying in bed, she could have become bitter. Instead, she studied English literature and began to sing and write. She writes all these hymns for the church and it says we we remember Eliza Hewitt because of those hymns. Had she never been bedridden, she might not have written the hymns. Among the best known, when we all get to heaven, and then it talks about how she recovered, and then she passed away ultimately in 1920. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. It's really a great hymn. And by the way, um, a lot of those hymns, the content is just so rich, and I so appreciated that third song. I appreciate all the songs in our church, but man, that, that new song we sang today was rich in its content, so biblically sound. And, and if you're not into the old hymns, by the way, Matt Redman has a rendition, a beautiful rendition of When We All Get to Heaven. It's called One Day. And I listened to it recently, it blessed me. He talks about you know, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more walking through the valley of the shadow of death, no more cancer, uh, just the brightness of your glory when we all get to heaven. It's just absolutely beautiful. And so one day, we're gonna shout and sing the victory, but here's some more good news. If you guys are still with me, say amen here. So listen to this. We don't have to wait till heaven to be joyful. We can be joyful now. And here's why. Here's why. Because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon us. It's in verse 14. It's right there. Look at verse 14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are 
blessed, happy, joyful. Why? Because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. When the spirit of the glory of God rests on somebody, man, that makes that person joyful. And Paul and Silas experienced this joy in Acts chapter uh, 16. And so you guys remember the story, but they're there, Paul, Silas, missionaries, and they're sharing the gospel, and yet there's this annoying young girl, and she keeps screaming, and so Paul turns around, and he casts a demon out of her. And now all of a sudden, she doesn't have the paranormal uh, ability to tell people's fortunes, and I know this, this day, a lot of people fake it, but back then, this, this was a real demon, this was real ability from the demonic realm, and so Paul cast out the demon, right, and all of a sudden, she, she's fine, but she doesn't have her ability anymore, and so what does that do? That causes the revenue and the business to tank, and that causes the owners of the business to be really mad, because have you noticed when you mess with someone's pocketbook, they seem to get upset? And so they grabbed, without any due process, mob violence, they grabbed Paul and Silas, they drug them to the marketplace before the rulers, and they're like, these Jews are disturbing our city. They're teaching things that we as Romans are not allowed to accept. And the next thing you know, no due process, mob violence, they rip off Paul and Silas's robes, they take rods, and they begin to beat these guys until their backs are bloodied. And then they put their feet in the stocks, they throw them in the inner prison. And so this is what I love about the story. Do you know how Paul and Silas responded to this injustice? With singing. Luke tells us in Acts that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. There's always somebody watching. And so instead of becoming all bummed out and bitter, these guys broke out into a duet of praise. They made a choice to rejoice, and when they did that, verse 14, the spirit of the glory of God rested upon them, gave them a joy unspeakable and full of glory, a peace that surpasses all understanding, right in the middle of their pain, right in the middle of their trial. God will do that. Listen, this is not just for some special people. He'll do that for you too. They're godly men. They're sitting in an inner prison, backs bleeding, feet in stocks. And in the middle of that difficulty, they're praising the Lord. And then the earthquake hits. And what a testimony to everybody who hears. I'll let you read the rest of the story. But I said all that to say this, that when persecution, not if, when persecution comes into our lives at whatever time, whatever level, it's so easy to get upset. When we hear people are talking about us behind our back, speaking negatively, sharing things that are not true, it's so easy to get upset. But instead of getting bummed out and bitter, if we'll do like Paul and Silas and we'll make a choice in that moment to rejoice, guess what? God's still God 2,000 years later. His spirit is going to gloriously rest upon you too in the middle of your trial. And he'll give you. And by the way, this is for persecution or any of the various trials because first, I'm sorry, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, listen to this, be anxious for nothing but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God Prayers go up, what happens? Peace comes down. 
and the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. That's a gift for you even in difficult times. Verse 15, we're almost there. Please stay with me to the end here. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I said this last week, but man, if you're making a series of wrong, sinful choices and rebellion to God, and all of a sudden you're suffering, don't say, I'm suffering as a Christian. No, you're just reaping what you sow. This sermon has nothing to do with you. Please repent and get right with God. Verse 16, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Uh-oh, here we go. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's the church. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so as we consider this topic, we should be willing, number eight, to accept the quote unquote fire of refinement. Now the reason I put fire in quotes there, it's a metaphor. And so it's not literal fire, I'm talking about trials, tribulations, suffering, setbacks, problem, pain. And so we need to be willing as God's kids to accept the fire of refinement. And so in this whole context of where we're at in the Bible, Peter says in verse 17 that it's time for judgment to start in the household of God. That means in the church, among believers. And we've, we've come right now to a very crucial point in the message. And so I really want you to please, please with, listen with Dumbo ears, okay? Because this can be a confusing topic and people you know, um, go back and forth. But if you get this right here, I think it's gonna clear it up for you. Okay, and so when God judges his children, it's never a judgment of damnation, it's a judgment of discipline. We're talking about disciplining kids, we're not talking about hardened criminals being sentenced, okay? So when God, I'll say it another way, when God judges his children, it's never a judgment of punishment, it's a judgment of purging. Reason I say that is because of this right here. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, comes from heaven to earth and he goes to a cross and he hangs, why? Because he loves you and he doesn't wanna be separated from you forever and so he takes your sin and my sin and his body on the tree and Jesus receives punitive punishment from a holy God, and why? So that God could be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus, so that a just judge can still judge sin in Christ, not that Christ was a sinner, he was perfect, it's our sin put on him. God can be just because as a judge, he still 
judges sin, and yet the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. We believe that he suffered and died for us and paid for our sins in full, rose from the dead. We receive him. All of a sudden now we give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. That's the gospel. So listen, listen, listen. What does that mean? That means there's no punitive punishment for believers. Are you getting this child of God? Good, good news right here. Therefore, please, 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 do not ever tell somebody who's a child of God, well, the reason that you're going through this trial is because God is punishing you. Please don't say that. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a local church here. We've had it now for 17 years, almost. And we have a group of pastors, and the pastors are shepherds. We're your overseers. You're the sheep, we're the shepherds. Christ is the chief shepherd, we're just under shepherds. But as pastors, we feel this burden, we feel this weight, we feel this tremendous responsibility to protect the sheep. We wanna protect the flock from outside influences and false doctrine and false statements. And so we are so, so passionate about this. It's just a gift that God has given to us. So you gotta understand the difference here. Christ paid for our sins, he rose from the dead, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so as God's kids who've been justified by faith, we do not suffer trials as punitive punishment. But we absolutely as God's kids suffer trials as we're being purged. You see, justification, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Christ took the punitive punishment. I never have to worry about receiving punitive punishment. That's justification. But sanctification, I'm being saved as God's kid from the power of sin, and you better believe that will include suffering, trials, problems, difficulty, and pain. Why? To purge us. Chuck Swindoll put it this way. He said, though always difficult to endure and often impossible to comprehend at times, believers need hurtful times. Now, I know you'll never hear that from some of these guys on TV, but believers need hurtful times. Why? To be, please shout out the word, purified, it's purging. God uses suffering as a tool to sanctify and cleanse and refine his people. And we saw that in chapter one, verses six and seven. Listen, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what does the testing of our faith look like? It looks like gold being tested by fire. And I taught you guys this in week two of our first Peter um, study, but that, that ancient goldsmith, right? He, when he got that ore, that piece of ore, he knew 
this rock that I have mined from the earth has pure gold in it. And it's my job to extract the gold. All right, so how am I going to do it? I'm gonna put it in the crucible and I'm gonna heat it up. And as it gets hotter and hotter, the ore is going to liquefy and the impurities are gonna to go to the top and I'm gonna skim those purities, impurities away and it's gonna leave me with pure gold that I can pour out and after it cools off, I can make something beautiful. He makes something beautiful, but guess what? It's a painful process. So why does God allow fiery trials in our lives during our sanctification? There's lots of reasons. Here's really quick, three. Number one, it's in order to reveal, sometimes it comes to reveal to you that you're truly a Christian. God already knows, he knows your heart. But here's what I know, that if you're going forward for Jesus and you keep getting hit and hit, and hit and hit with the trials of life and you keep going forward for Jesus, you're a Christian, man. But also sometimes he allows these fiery trials so the impurities of our life, how many of you guys know that trials and tribulations and suffering, it really helps us to look at everything with realistically and help us know what's really important, what's not important. And the impurities come to the top and we repent, we skim them away so that the Lord can make something beautiful in our lives. And so the fire, everybody look at me, the fire, metaphorically speaking, trials and tribulations, the fire that believers endure is for purging. The fire that unbelievers endure and will endure forever is for punishment. And we see that in verse 18. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, that's eternal judgment. Dr. John MacArthur, about verse 18, wrote this. He says it way better than me. He said, it's far better to endure suffering as the Lord purges and strengthens the church than to endure the eternal sufferings of the unbeliever in the lake of fire. And if God so strongly and painfully judges his church, which he loves, what will be his fury on the ungodly? And so the purging fire that believers go through, like us, nothing compared to the fire that unbelievers experience. Why? One is for discipline, the other is for damnation. And, and listen, I'm not just coming up with this stuff. Jesus described hell in Mark chapter nine with these words. Listen to this. He said, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And like I told you a few weeks ago, Jesus knows a lot about these things. And so an unbeliever says, well, what should I do? You should turn to Christ in repentance and faith and not put it off. You should accept what Jesus did on the cross as full payment for your sin, believe he rose from the dead, and receive him as your savior and the Lord of your life. And then what will happen? You'll never have to worry about the punitive punishment of the fires of hell. You never have to worry about that. All you gotta be concerned with is the purging fires in this life. Here's your last verse and I'm done. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, and by the way, if 
you made it all the way to the end of this chapter and you still don't think it's God's will for his kids to suffer, I don't know what else to say to you. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to what kind of creator? A faithful creator while doing good. And so as we consider this topic, last point, we should be willing, and I put all two weeks, part one and part two on the screen, but we should be willing, last point, number nine, to entrust our soul to our faithful Father. As we think about that, somebody here might say, or somebody watching at home, you might say, listen, I'm suffering right now, and I don't get it, I don't understand, and you know, I've been thinking that maybe God is mean, just to be real and honest, I'm thinking God might be mean, or maybe he's mistaken, and so in closing, I'll let the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, comment on what you may be thinking. He said, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we can't trace his hand, we must do what? You see that? Moms and dads, the love that you have for your kids Moms and dads, listen, the, loves you, the love you have for your kids, times that by a zillion billion, and now you've barely scratched the surface of God's love for his kids. And we don't always get what God is doing. We can't trace his hand, but we can absolutely trust his heart. It's for your good, and it's for his glory, amen? Amen.